Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a financial planning and investment firm located in Madera, California. Thank you guys for tuning in today. And we're starting this month of February and we're going to be talking about education. The whole month of February will be focused on education. So we're going to have several different guests on giving us their perspective on education. And today, one of my lifelong friends, mentor, coach, and all around great guy is going to join us today. Today, we're going to have Todd Lyle on. And Todd and I have known each other since I was 11 years old. We met a while, like a long time ago, and we'll get into that a little bit as we talk. But Todd is the superintendent for Madera Unified School District. And you listeners know that I am located in Madera, Madera, California, the thriving metropolis of Madera, California. (laughs) Todd, thanks for joining us today. Emlyn, it's good to be here, man. And I'm going to support you in everything that you do. I appreciate that. Todd was my football coach when I was 11 years old. Man, we got stories. We got history. And I absolutely love this guy. He's always been great to me. And today, I hope you guys really enjoy this. So Todd, I mean, I'm going to, if you wouldn't mind, give the listeners a little brief background of yourself and, and kind of what you're doing now and where you came from. So I came from Madera, California. Mm-hmm. I'm a product of the school system here. And my parents were both teachers in this community. My aunt and uncle were both educators in this community. And my roots only go back to the early 70s here. You know, the town's a lot older than that. But it feels like, you know, there's no better definition of a hometown than the way I feel about Madera. So it's fun to be leading the school district, the organization that so many people in my family cared about and put their time and money and effort and energy and emotion into right here in the town that raised me. So that's pretty cool. Um, I've been at it now since the summer of 1992. When I met you, I just graduated from high school and was a paraprofessional in special education at the elementary that I went to. And I've been in education since 1992 now. So we're looking at 28 years. Man, just getting started. Just getting started, man. I still, I got 20 more years to go. That's the, that's the big challenge here. I'm only 45 years old, so I got a ways to go. Yeah, you've been teaching for a while. And, and I think that's something about, like when I'm listening to you talk about, there's a sense of pride, people that come from Madera. My wife talks about it all the time. You guys are like so proud of this water tower and just everything <laughs> Madera. And I said, hey, I said, we don't got much here, but we do have a sense of pride and we have a sense of community. And I think it's always awesome when, as a community, you can have someone like yourself that's been born and raised here to have a position in leadership where you can actually make a difference in education. So I, I thank you for the work that you're doing and wish you nothing but continued success in, in the changes and, and things that are coming up for you. Well, man, I think our generation is on the front lines of what really is a community like rebound. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're bouncing back from some tough years back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people doing extraordinary things. And some people have been doing those extraordinary things for decades. That's why we're able to build on top of it, right? I mean, there's a lot of people out there in the the world of charity and philanthropy and community organization and volunteerism. They've been doing tremendous work for years and years and years, and they give us the chance to bounce back. And it's fun to watch 
the community to respond to that because they certainly are. Absolutely. Yeah, there is a buzz going around and people are finally getting behind one another here in the community and trying to see some great changes. But we brought you on today to talk about education. And today we're going to spend some time talking about unlocking doors with education. The subtitle of this, if we had one, would say when the minority is the majority. If you, you know, you've been in Madeira or been in California or been almost anywhere in the country, this is called minority money. But it's almost like a misnomer because the minorities have become the majority in a lot of different areas. And so today we just wanted to touch on a few things about education and, and just kind of, you know, just have a good conversation w- with you about it. And, and so with that, Todd, I just wanted to jump right in and, and oh, this is very important and I didn't want to forget this. What time do the Cowboys play uh, this weekend? I'd have to ask my son, man. He 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 always knows because <laughs> and he and he would be able to tell me quickly they ain't playing this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I I couldn't miss the chance to dig on you about those cowboys. I I had to throw that in. I mean, I think that's just as important as the other information for any well, cowboys fans. It, I was always a cowboy fan, and what Jerry Jones did to uh, Tom Landry has like hurt me since well, what was that, 1987. Has been bothering me since 1987, so I haven't been able to always commit to those Cowboys, but I have been pretty convicted that my favorite team in the NFL is whoever is playing the Niners. Oh well, I guess you're going to have a few more weeks to to, to I, root for the other guys, but whoever that is, that's hey, right. <laughs> it, I mean, because it, it's going to be more than one. I, I'm predicting a victory coming up for us. Hopefully, by the time this airs, we've won the Super Bowl. So I'm, I'm I mean, hoping they, I got my fingers crossed. They haven't looked this good in 20 years. So you got a real shot. I'm hoping. Yeah, for real. So let's talk about this. Just jump right in. So talk about education in the 21st century. Todd, can you give us just a little a bit of the landscape of what education is like right now? Yeah, you know, it's changed drastically here in the last 20 years. And there's been a couple of real distinct phases in that change. You know, there was in the late 1990s, there was a movement towards standards-based education that would lay out the bare bones of what should be expected at every level of education, every grade level. And that was really hard for our teachers to work with because in the previous environment, there was really just curriculum that was purchased and assembled at the school side level from a variety of educational products that people put together. And there was some grade level expectations there. It wasn't as if there there weren't, but standards got a lot more prescribed. Mm -hmm. And then in the early 2000s, we added in, you know, no child left behind where, you know, the federal government was guaranteeing that all students would be at grade level by 2014. Well, that was obviously didn't happen. So the era of standards and high accountability with these real high stakes tests really combined to squeeze out a lot of love and enthusiasm and creativity at education. And it's been really a challenge to keep up the level of rigor and relevance that kids need in a modern globalized society And at the same time, inspire some creativity and some curiosity Mm -hmm. amongst teachers and kids so that they're growing together. I think we swung the pendulum so hard Mm -hmm. that to try to bring it back to a place where creativity is desirable and curiosity is is rewarded is really hard because we still haven't walked away from these high stakes tests, which, you know, put really heavy labels on uh, communities that are struggling. And it tends to be communities that are you know, working class and Mm -hmm. struggling. And in a lot of cases that historically, as we know, class comes along with race. And that's Mm -hmm. an American 
you know, negative tradition, but it's been there baked in the died, died in the fabric of this country from the very beginning. So there's a lot of us on the front lines. You have, there's a couple of generations of educators that, you know, some of them toward the end of their career and some of them here in the their early part of their career. And we're all killing ourselves to try to figure out how we're going to reestablish a new and healthy normal for the kids of this country. And you have to do it community by community because there's not really a federal apparatus for that, so to speak. You know, we got 50 different states with 50 different ways of doing business. Then within that, you have local control at the community level. So there is just a, a real intense variety of things that are working around the country and not all of the lessons in one state or one county or one district are applicable to another. We're learning a lot from each other and we're pushing ourselves really hard. But what we're learning right now that I think is really important and is, is I think very hard for modern people to wrap their heads around is that the vast majority of the work that our students, today's students will do by the time they retire has not yet been created. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about what we're training kids for, we can't give you a title. We can't give you a discipline. You know, we can't give you an industry. Um, we can give you some sectors of industry. Mm-hmm. You know, we can say healthcare because we know healthcare is not going to go away. We're going to need it. Mm-hmm. But we can't say that it's going to be an x-ray tech. Mm-hmm. There may be something that comes along that supersedes that technology and makes it irrelevant and obsolete. And so we, then we can't train people for such a discrete role, not this early in their education. That can come later, you know, on the career side of things, but, but we have to prepare them so they're ready to pursue those things when they know what they want. So it's, it's a real challenge to think through the unknowns of the 21st century. There's no way in the world in 1920, at the dawn of the roaring 20s, mm-hmm. that they would have ever signed off on going to the moon in 1969. Yeah. You know, we have no idea what's going to happen in 2069. Where will we be in that same yeah. amount of time? You bring up a, an important point. And I just wanted to interject this real quick because I think about reading a book the other day and they were talking about the founders of Google. So they meet by chance at Stanford. I want to say in the late 90s, 95, 96, something like that. And little did these two people know that they were going you know, to get this education and then they meet each other and then these two change the world. Right. The entire world, like everything that you can think of far as information, tracking. I mean, they just changed. Google changed the world. And, you know, me graduating in 99, Google was so small, it wouldn't even be something that I would think about working at, you know, 20 years later. Right. That's a location. Like you want to work at Google. You want to work at the Facebook. You want to work at these different companies. And there's really without the curiosity and the creative skills that you need people to have to live in this 21st century, it's going to make it incredibly difficult for young people trying to, you know, have a job. Like, I don't even know if there's like a, like, I want to work at Google. What is that? What, what do you do? Like, how do you prepare someone to do that? And I think educators have done a good job of saying, this is what you need to study because we need you to pass this big test. And this is how everything's rewarded or, or not based on what you get on this in particular test. So we can't have you out here being creative. We need to have you in this box so that we can have you get this good test score. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. You know, we, um, a really brilliant British education reformer named Sir Kenneth Robinson, he, he has some really brilliant TED Talks and 
has done some fantastic writing and thinking, and he's just a, a tremendous brain in the world of education and really forward thinking. And one of the things that he calls out really accurately is the 20th century's version of education when kids were most successful mm-hmm. and were on their way to the Stanfords, right? Mm-hmm. When all the way from kindergarten, all the way through 12th grade, and then headed off to the Stanfords. The track that they were on, if you really follow it through, had them, you know, was setting them up to become future professors, mm-hmm. researchers, writers. You know, we were trying to create, the system was generally created to, to create that level of thinker. Mm-hmm. Well, there's all kinds of incredible innovations that have happened way outside that profession and that class of educated person. Mm-hmm. An interesting parallel to Google is Marvel. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody would have guessed, you know, in the 80s and 90s that and Marvel was almost bankrupt in the 90s. Nobody would have ever guessed that the intellectual properties that had been created through those decades from the early 60s up through the 90s was going to generate 20 years later, multiple billion dollar movies. Mm-hmm. No one had any idea. Mm-mm. In fact, every teacher I ever had told me, don't bring those comic books to school. Yeah, Don't waste your time with those things. My mom took them and shredded them mm-hmm. and threw them away. I, I learned how to hide them all over my bedroom. <laughs> and nobody wanted me to draw those pictures. And I was a comic book illustrator as a, as a young person was something I, I toyed with, right? But everybody told you, you can't make any money at that. Don't mm-hmm. do that. There's nothing in that. There's no future in that. Well, come to find out, Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most gigantic entity in the history of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And nobody saw that coming, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's because creativity is what the 21st century is going to be about. It's funny because I'm reading this book uh, right now, actually called Alchemy. And Alchemy talks about basically thinking outside the box, being creative, more philosophical stuff, not being so logical and rigid, but actually leaving yourself some stuff, um, some room, some wiggle room. And I'm just thinking about what you're saying. And I know we're talking about stuff at a high level, you know, Marvel, Google, you know, some of the other things that we, we brought up, but I'm, I'm thinking about like, now we talked about unlocking doors. Now we're saying that people need to have this ability to think outside the box. That's basically what it, what it, if I, if I sum it up in that people need to have that ability to think outside the box. But when you have these, you know, we talked a little bit about it when you alluded to some of the minority kids, basically minorities are going to have a little different place, not necessarily place, but typically they've had a different place when it comes to education. Uh, and so I wanted to get into uh, a little bit about the doors that have typically been closed to minority students. For no other, you know, just talk about that a little bit, because I know this is something that you've been passionate about in trying to open up doors for all students, but I know that you had a special spot for the minority kids. It's a challenge to actually talk about because it's such a sprawling set of issues that all get tied up in history, right? Mm -hmm. And so long before Brown versus the Board of Education Mm -hmm. in 1954, long before that, there was a great need to educate the kids of America. Mm -hmm. But for generations, we accepted collateral damage. I just had this discussion with some staff and some community members here recently that, you know, for generations, we allowed collateral damage. We knew that 40, 50% of kids would not graduate. And we accepted that a lot of them would be boys. A lot of them would be handicapped. A lot of them would have disabilities. A lot of them would have personal circumstances. A lot of them would have maybe some 
some social emotional issues. And, and a lot of them were kids who were black and brown. And we just accepted that. That was just almost as if we accepted gravity. It was just the way it was. Mm -hmm. And people didn't even really question it so much. And then to have it questioned um, was something that seemed radical to people and, and seemed like, you know, we were ultra liberal and rabble rousers. And I came from a family where all kids mattered. My parents taught in very multiracial schools here in this community. And they were of a generation that, to their credit at the time, they thought that treating kids in a colorblind way really opened up doors and gave everybody a chance. They didn't want to see that kids were different because in their generation, seeing the difference meant giving up on kids. Mm -hmm. In this generation, educators, we recognized that that was naive and on some levels innocent, probably. And it's really valuable that we see kids for who they are and what their life circumstances are and what history dictates because our country treats them in those stereotypical ways still far too often and kids are locked out. We had to fight this out at the Supreme Court level and upend the whole status quo in 1954 to even get the conversation started. And President Eisenhower had to send in the airborne you know, to guard kids to go to Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple of those stories that happened all the way into the early 1980s when we stopped you know, integrated busing. And today we're at the point where in lots of communities like Madera, at some point in the early 1990s, I think for us, it was probably 1990 or 91, the minority, what had been typically considered the minority, became the majority. Mm -hmm. And Madera has had a Latino minority by the national standards be the majority of this city's population. And if we don't change the way we allowed collateral damage in the system and we don't think about literally unlocking doors that typically haven't been opened and, and kids have been un, you know, underrepresented in, in different professions and career sectors and classes, advanced placement, you know, dual enrollment for college credit. In those places where kids had been traditionally underrepresented or even felt like they were locked out or not wanted, we have to very purposely, intentionally see that for what it is mm -hmm. and its historical circumstances and the limits that that had placed on kids and their families. We've got to go unlock those doors and we got to invite the kids in because they can do it. We see all the time the kids who otherwise didn't believe in themselves when given a chance thrive. And just like they have, you know, in, in really public cases where someone breaks the color barrier like Jackie Robinson, well, it happens on a micro level too when kids go into AP or dual enrollment or they go into journalism or they get into student government and all of a sudden they're making this huge difference. Mm -hmm. And that signals to all the other kids who are watching that it's possible. And it changes everything in a community and on a school campus. I think it's so important for the kids to see other people of color being successful. And so I think that goes back into it. And I say that with understanding pre-desegregation, that for, and I'm talking, speaking to, to African-Americans at this point, but prior to that, the number one profession for African-Americans was being a teacher prior to the desegregation of the schools. That was the number one profession. And I say that to say this, like when you think about as a child growing up from any color, from any race, and you're being able to see someone that's in your classroom that looks like you, 
it changes things a little bit. You can relate whether it's relating on food, like, you know, whether you're talking about having grits or having greens or having, you know, some hot water cornbread or what have you, whether you're talking about having tacos or, you know, having homemade flour tortillas or homemade corn, having tamales or whatever. Like when you can have that interaction with the teacher, it changes the educational experience for the student, especially from someone that's coming from a broken home and has never seen someone of success of their race. It's so impactful. And so this is one of those things like you're like you're like you're getting to like I think that it's a big issue. It's not going to be, you know, solved today, but it's definitely something that we need to continue to work to. And the reason why I was bringing up the the whole thing about the educators the number one profession of African Americans being educators is because they desegregated the schools. They never desegregated the teachers. That's right. And so they take all these kids out and then they put them all in class. And then now you have the stuff that you're talking about that has happened for decades because they've removed all of the teachers that these children would relate to. And now they can't culturally relate. And so now you don't understand some of the things and there's a disconnect. There's not the relationship that's being built and it leads itself to other things that happen. And I'm saying, I mean, this is just a broad stroking statement. I mean, we can get into the granular stuff. I don't think we have time for that, but I just kind of wanted to to give some background on on how that desegregation actually or desegregation of the students without the teachers was actually negatively impacted the African-American kids. That's one of those stories that does not get told. And it was not obviously consideration of the dominant culture when they decided at the Supreme Court level that we were going to desegregate. Yeah. And those desegregation plans that every community you know, had to generate and submit under court order didn't incorporate how we're going to bring on black teachers yeah. into our schools. Mm-hmm. That, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And all those administrators, all those teachers... That support staff in the separate and unequal schools didn't get a chance necessarily to move forward and to stay in their roles. Those schools don't exist anymore in most mm-hmm. cases. And um, one of the first times I really ever heard this story told from a personal point of view was here in Madera, one of our NAACP leaders and a, a real education leader here in town talked about how his father was a school principal in Arkansas during segregation. Mm-hmm. And how important it was to him to foster a quality education for kids. You know, I, I had never considered that side of the story. And what a, what a tremendous loss of human capital and intellectual capital and skills that was to every community that lost one of those schools and those, and those teachers. That just irreplaceable, right? And so now here we are having this discussion more than 70 years later, trying to figure out how we're going to recruit the very best candidates that really magnetize and inspire our kids and, mm-hmm. and relate to them and build quality relationships. Because no matter what we do in terms of standards or curriculum or anything else, the only thing that brings that to life is a quality relationship mm-hmm. between the teacher in the classroom and the students in the desks. Absolutely. When we can't have that and we can't inspire kids, then the rest of it becomes really a moot point. Absolutely. And and I think it's it's more than a than a race or color issue. I think it's more of a relationship issue. Absolutely. Race and color have something to do with it. But I think if you look at it, I know that, you know, obviously people can reach across color lines and help people. Absolutely. Like that's not I mean, we wouldn't be sitting here talking if that wasn't possible. Right. You know, we met that way. So so but I, what I'm saying is that I think 
I think we just have to be more mindful of it and mindful of the relationship building piece of what's going on at school. I heard a podcast the other day, one of my, one of my buddies, Tyrone uh, Ross was on my podcast and he was sharing his story on his podcast. And it was crazy. Todd, he's talking about, he was, uh, he worked in some form of law enforcement. He was going up to the high school to pick up a kid that they were kicking out of school because he had been misbehaving. And so Tyrone is driving him to, to the police department. And he says, Hey man, you know, just what's going on, man. You know, what, what's the deal, man? Why, what, you know, what's going on with you? The kid tells him, you really want to know? He said, yeah, what's going on? He said, my grandfather and my uncle are raping me in the basement and I'm trying to tell my grandmother and, and, and no one's helping me. <laughs> and this child comes to school and he gets acting up. And I know, you know, you know, I've talked and I know there's stories that are similar to this that are, you know, and, and it's like, we don't think about that. And, and here we are ready to cart this kid off to jail when he doesn't need to be, he doesn't need to be the one going to jail. Those two men that live in his house need to be in jail and he needs to be in some type of therapy to, that's right. We need to, you know, but no one knows that because no one ever took the time to ask to build that relationship. And I think that's the bigger issue. I'll tell you what happened in the nineties when, you know, the country went to mandatory minimum sentences and went to three strikes you're out and went to zero tolerance I mean, I understand why we're drawing that line in the sand. I do. I get, I get it. I, I was alive and well at that time. And I remember, you know, the, the feelings of being out on the streets at night and didn't, you know, we grew up in California, man. We were here when things were going crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we know. I don't like to talk about it too much. And so I won't tell the story, but I faced a gun twice, mm-hmm. you know, in my, in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, those aren't pleasant things to think about. And, and I know we were, we were feeling like we had to really draw a line in the sand. What we did though, is we stopped building relationships with each other. We stopped talking. Mm-hmm. We started just reacting and mm-hmm. we, we quit asking questions. And one of my very first realizations as a vice principal, and I already knew this as a teacher, but I didn't understand it at the level that you, that you see it in administration, where the stories that you just told um, become so much more frequent and go farther down the well than they did when I was a teacher. Mm-hmm. Kids told me things when I was a teacher that they didn't tell other teachers. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of CPS reporting. I did a lot of, you know, working with administration to try to get a kid some help. And I had fantastic counselors, um, colleagues, administrators, police officers that helped me in those years. As a vice principal, though, it was all coming to me. Mm-hmm. So where I would get, you know, four of those a year as a teacher, now I was getting four a week. Mm-hmm. as a vice principal. And what I discovered very quickly was after that environment of the nineties, people quit asking why instead of, you know, what were you thinking? Didn't you know what was going to happen? And then we apply the consequence instead of why are you, why are you saying what you're saying in a situation that doesn't warrant it? Right. You're, mm-hmm. you're telling, I, I remember very clearly one of our safety officers being really upset he was just telling kids to go to class. He was standing in the same spot. He always stood on the same curb at the school, telling kids, this, you know, bell rang, get to class. And a kid screamed at him, you know, to go F himself. Mm-hmm. And so he brings him in. He's like, this disrespect, I can't have this. This is, and he's right. We can't have that. Yeah. But why? And so the kid actually told me why. And it was a story very similar to the one you just told. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's trying to find a way to tell somebody, pay attention to me. I need help. Mm-hmm. And nobody was willing to ask. And if you just ask a few questions deeper, then what were you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know, and why, if you just go a little deeper, 
especially with modern kids, because mm-hmm. there's so much more information they have now about what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. They will tell you what's going on in their lives. And when you know, Emlyn, it's heartbreaking, man. It's, it's heartbreaking. And kids are trying to break the cycle. That's why they're talking. Mm-hmm. They want help. And we can't penalize them for the way they ask for help. I mean, if they're not hurting somebody else, and it's, it's certainly not you know, irrevocable, the harm that we need to find out what they're doing and get them in a place or get them the help they need. Sometimes it's a removal of the situation. Sometimes it's support, mm-hmm. but that's one of those things that just hasn't happened in American education near enough. And we just built a behavioral health department here in our district and we needed it. And it's overwhelmed as it stands now and it's staffed, but already yep. overwhelmed. Yep. And so we talked about the doors that have been locked or closed. How do we unlock some of those doors? I hate to be the person to always have the problem and not have some items that we could start working on a solution. So what would you say some of the, you know, how, how can we unlock those doors? You know, there's, there's a couple different ways to take this on. I mean, there's, there's first the, you know, the human ways things present themselves and, and kids provide us indicators that they're going through some incredible stressors in their life. And they're, they're presenting some antisocial behavior. We start asking why. And we get them the help we need, like we were discussing. Um, that's something that wasn't there before. And so kids who are in you know, extreme circumstances, whether they're you know, historical and predictable or whether they're not, their situation is individual and personal to them. And we have to take it personally and we have to help them individually. That's one way because we stabilize them and they have a chance to learn and grow again. It may take us a long time before we can get to that point, but if we're not attempting it, and they're getting a clear message that society doesn't care and we're accepting collateral damage. And we just can't do that. That's, I mean, it's not even a moral thing to do. It never was. And it's, it's certainly not knowing now that, that adverse childhood experiences actually shorten lifespans. The Center for Disease Control has proven that over and over again. And we know that when kids go through abuse and neglect and of whatever form or if they witness abuse and neglect, um, it shortens their lifespan. I mean, they like sometimes by multiple decades and, and, it, and it ends up manifesting in lots of antisocial behavior and lots of escapism and addiction and all kinds of real detrimental things that tear families apart. So somewhere we have to break the cycle and take it seriously for each and every kid. And a lot of cases we know that, that there is some predictability about poverty and race and class and opportunity. So if we're not taking those things into consideration, then we, we leave the historical circumstances untouched for that family. And often we get very predictable, sad results. The other thing that we all have to do is we've got to look really seriously at the policy that we've inherited from previous generations of educators. And they were, those policies were almost always established you know, by the dominant class, by the people who represented the powers that were. And so if we're going to create a new world that hasn't existed, we've got to really examine the world we've inherited and understand how kids have been locked out of advanced placement or dual enrollment, how kids have been, you know, allowed to linger for too many years off grade level in their reading abilities. It starts really young in the system that kids get the sense that they don't fit. And, you know, we've known this since those early doll experiments when, you know, asked when, when. African-American children were asked, which doll is, is smart? And they would point to the white doll. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, there was a, there's a sense that they've absorbed society's ills really, really early. And if we don't interrupt that and take that really seriously as early as kindergarten and first grade, we're making some similar mistakes that have been made for generations. We can do better than that. 
we know how to do better than that. Our teachers are asking us to do better than that. And I think that's something that I that I go back to, and it's important for other minorities and people, just just people in general, to be able to show kids like this is why every time I go to the high school, if I go, I always make sure I'm wearing a suit. I always make sure I'm wearing a tie or dress very, very nice. So kids can see, you know, uh, uh, especially here in Madera, see a young black man dress nice. Kids always ask me, what do you do? You're wearing a, you know, you're wearing all, what do you do? Uh, It's important for them to see that because I think unconsciously we develop these bias that are even against ourselves. Like, as you said, they said, what doll is smart? Like, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote in one of his uh, in his book Blink, where you had to make you know the ability to make quick decisions, and you go through and it has like categories of of words, descriptive words, and you have to pick and associate those words with a person. It's incredibly it, it's difficult to do, and it's really even harder to see your results when you look at it. It's in Blink's for anybody that wants to read that. Blink is an incredible book by Malcolm Gladwell. I'd, I'd highly recommend that. Yeah, it's one of his best. But, you know, as we're looking at this, what are some tips that we can have like for parents? Because, you know, parents are going to listen to this. Undoubtedly, I'm a parent, you're a parent, and we're looking at this. And so I'm trying to figure out what could parents do to help? I think one of the most important things for parents to consider is the circumstances of the community they live in and the school district and schools their kids go to. Being involved and understanding the organization as it stands really makes a huge difference. When you have parents who are advocating for the needs of their kids and they they understand how the system operates, they can make massive changes in really a short amount of time. You know, our our board here in Madera has been pretty committed to listening to parents and they, they do. And there's been a lot of decisions that they've made because they recognize what parents are asking. That makes a huge difference. And I think parents need to understand that their preconceived notions about education typically come from history. And if they want a different outcome, they've got to have a different level of involvement than maybe what they experienced. They have to have a different level of expectation than maybe was expected for even them when they were in school. But there's some things changing too that I think parents would be surprised about. You know, a lot of times we come across parents who are convicted that their kids are going to do better than they did. And so they're going to make sure that their kid does more homework, that their kid does more math at night, that their kid does you know, reads more books. And what we're finding out is the highly successful education systems around the world don't operate on more is better. They operate under smarter is better. And so they, they're they very strategic in the things that they focus on. It's not more flashcards, more math facts, you know, more words read, although those are all valuable. It's not more homework. It's it's being more creative. It's being able to understand more of what you're learning and being able to talk about it. It's having more dialogue around the value of school and the value of learning for your students. So you're combating whatever they're absorbing, you know, in, in society that might be negative, that you might not even know about until it's too late. You know, kids are absorbing all kinds of messages around us all the time. And one of the things that makes a huge difference, and we hear this all the time from our educators um, who are here and are successful parents who were here, they, their parents told them how important school was. Mm-hmm. They never wavered from that. They never made excuses. They supported their kids. If their kids were being mistreated, they were there to advocate for them, but they never came up with excuses. They always pushed hard on their kids to do their very best. But I think it's important that they recognize that schools are really trying to meet all kids' needs now. Mm-hmm. And for us to understand those needs, especially for our youngest, we got to hear from their parents because their parents know their kids best. 
So as, as involved as they can be, as many positive messages around school and education and reading and learning as they can promote, that makes a huge difference to each individual kid. But as teams of parents involved at schools advocating for what's needed, they can make huge policy changes at a very local level because they can address the local context with people face-to-face, right, as, as credible parent advocates. I think that's essential. And we're really blessed with a lot of really powerful advocates here in our parent community. And, I, you know, speaking as, as a parent of students here in Madera Unified, yeah, being involved makes a whole world of difference. Like I'm, you know, with with the technology, most people, most school districts are going to have Aries. I can communicate with the with the teachers. They can reach out to me if something's going on. And that's just the beginning of, of what a parent can do is, you know, getting in, you know, go to parent teacher and actually meet the, ter- the teacher. But that's a novel idea. Like meet the person before right. you start to judge them and, and say, oh, believe everything that like, because I don't think kids are lying intentionally, but sometimes they don't have the best memory about what really happened. <laughs> so, you know, that that's always good to be able to have that relationship with the teacher. So when something like that comes up, you can talk to them yeah. and it doesn't have to be you against them. Yeah, my seventh, my seventh grade English teacher, my version of his class was a whole lot different than probably the other kids' versions of the class because they, they weren't in trouble. When yeah. I went home, my version was a little different. Yeah, right. That, that's absolutely the case. You know, but, you know, here's, here's another piece of the puzzle. There's so much more information out there for parents to have. In mm-hmm. school districts like ours, we, we actually are presenting a, a multi-page booklet individualized for every kid about their successes in school, where they're struggling, and what next steps we could take. Mm -hmm. And this level of reporting that's possible now with data is really incredible. And and it helps us, the more we have dialogue with parents so that they understand, we understand what they are seeing too. Mm -hmm. The way doctors talk to parents about, talk, you know, pediatricians and child psychologists talk to parents a lot about what they're seeing. And they factor that in to the treatment, to the next steps. And as, as education moves more that direction, parents become more powerful, more essential mm-hmm. than they were before. Because we recognize there is no such thing as one size fits all. Yeah. There never has been and there never mm-hmm. will be. Mm-hmm. And when you've raised multiple children in your household, you know how vastly different the same kids in the same circumstances are and how they react so differently. You know, you do the same thing you did for one and it goes completely south for another. Yep. And we know that's happening in our classrooms. And the more we humanize that experience and individualize that with quality dialogue with parents on the same team, I think it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, that, I like that. I like the uh, direction of the district. Madera Unified's in, in good hands. We got a pretty good guy running it. You should meet him, Todd. Pretty good guy. <laughs> uh, so this is the uh, Minority Money Podcast where we are trying to change the complexion of wealth. And these are some of the questions that I asked to all of my guests. And I just wanted to, to give you an opportunity to talk about them. And the first question is, what motivates you to continue to learn and grow? I know it's going to sound really probably like a pat answer, but I've been saying it since I was a sophomore in high school. And my, my English teacher, Mr. Hopper, asked me this question. I just said that you know I wanted to make a difference. And when you see something change and you see you know, when I see it, athletes always talk about somebody else, right? So I'll talk about the first person. When I get a chance to see teachers succeeding with students, mm-hmm. man, is that motivating. When I see students self-actualizing on stage as actors or musicians or on the field as an athlete or, 
you know, in, in robotics or, or nursing, when you see that they feel like they are in their zone where they want to be, mm-hmm. that is uh, the dopamine rush that that gives an educator. That's pretty addictive. Nice. Do you think that education plays a big part in wealth building? It's interesting you asked this question and then we let's roll this back to what you said with Google, right? Those guys were getting a really amazing general education at Stanford and they had had an amazing general education getting up to that point. And instead of specializing, they were generalizing and thinking thoughts that had never been thought before and building something that never been built before and they changed the world. And I think that is an absolutely essential lesson for the 21st century, a really powerful general education that helps kids understand the context of the world they live in and the decisions they can make in that world, I think changes absolutely everything. And it gives kids the ability to flexibly respond and adapt and communicate and collaborate and, you know, produce and contribute in ways that meet the needs of their current context, right? Just don't know what's going to take place in the future. So you want to build the most well-rounded, most informed, most thoughtful thinker you can upon graduation so that as things change in this crazy world coming up, our kids are poised to take advantage of it and, and to keep themselves in a, in a great place and raise their families. I like that. If you could offer one piece of advice to the listeners today or pieces, sometimes people have a few things, but uh, one piece or pieces of advice to the listeners today, what, what would that advice be? I think I'm going to say something that I didn't plan on saying, but you know, in, in light of the discussion we had about the value of parents and the, the changing nature of education, I, I would say, remember that we're in a democracy and that sometimes dysfunctional as, as I fear people think this democracy is writ large on a community level, people know each other and they care mm-hmm. and remember that they have a voice that really matters. And we all want the best for our kids. That means we've got to get involved in making this community better, whether that's in you know, addressing the homeless issue, attending city council, going to back to school night, knowing your teacher, you're right in a democracy to have your voice heard and to make sure that your kids are getting what they need and make sure that you're, we're, we're rebuilding each and every one of our communities, you know, citizen by citizen in the way that we think is best moving forward. And I, I think that's the right we have in this country that, you know, I, I've lived in, in a few different other countries around the world, Emlyn, and that right doesn't exist. And I think a lot of times we take it for granted and we forget that the change in every community starts with us. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to add anything to that. I think it was, I think you, you spoke very well to that topic. And, you know, Todd, I, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your busy day to come in. If, if people want to get a hold or hear what Todd has to say, are, are you active on any social medias? Can people follow uh, Todd Lyle anywhere? Man, I, I wish I was on Twitter, but Twitter keeps scaring me the way, the way it operates, man. I'm on Facebook. Yeah. Okay. And that's Todd Lyle, just like it sounds, L-I-L-E, Todd with two Ds. And you need to get on Twitter, bud. That's where it's at. Twitter has the most underrated search function of all like social media apps. Like you can get almost just as much information off Twitter search as you can on Google. And people don't know that. Now there are some, there are some incredible educators on Twitter and they make, they're always doing something interesting and thought provoking. So I, I get your point. 
And um, I need to get myself in that space. Let's get there. And like I said, thanks for coming on. This is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, where we are changing the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcast app you're listening to on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and to be supported by others just like you. And again, we're super happy to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it cannot be completely your one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But guess what? If you have any questions, or maybe you just like to chat, please reach out to me directly at Imlin at MinorityMoney.com so that we can get to know each other there. Thanks for being here, and we're signing off.